welcome back. Part two of Pod End Child Rape. Sorry about that. Uh, quick bathroom break in the bush. So, where were we, John? Yep, the bush. Man, look at this view. It's the best place for a bathroom break, really. <laughs> where we were before the break, I just asked you, firstly, um, if you could maybe share a couple of stories of kids that oh, have right, come, come through. Yeah, a few little case studies. Um, of kids who because you've been there for a few years now so you must have seen kids make some huge transformations yeah it's going to be hard to even listen about where they started from but just tell us about it one or two of them everyone kind of knows a lot of people are very aware of Emily's case Um, incredibly sad and traumatic case for everybody involved um, it's been it's been really hard, particularly when we had so much success with her fundraising, um, and because of COVID, her surgical team haven't been able to come from Canada to Australia. So a lot of people know about Emily. A lot of people know about Morris because they've been quite prominent, um, quite prominent cases. Um, both of those children are still in my care. Um, Morris is sponsored by a wonderful lady called Amanda up in Brisbane. Um, who Good sponsors you, her edu- his education. He's, um, he's come so far, but there are so many cases, I guess, to give, to give different perspectives. Like a lot of people always see me talking about the cases where it's rape and where it's a very, very young child or a baby and it's somebody known. But for other cases, I had a case, uh, it was probably about my fifth day in Africa. I was at Buruburu Mission Hospital, the place that I mentioned before where we had the gang-raped nine-year-old um, who was pregnant. And a couple of days later, I had another girl called Jane. She was 11. Uh, she appeared to be South Sudanese in origin, maybe from her grandparents or something. Very tall, really, really dark skin and slim. And um, she was gang-raped by about nine or 10 men in, uh, it was either Buruburu or Embakasi, which is a region in Nairobi. And uh, she was nine months pregnant and we did her C-section as well. And um, she was so incredibly traumatized and all I wanted to do was give her a hug and tell her that she had every right to cry and she should be upset and she's allowed to be. And the culture at at this religious mission hospital was that she should love her child and the child is a gift from God. And it was it was probably one of the most traumatic things I've ever gone through in this case. Um, from a psychological perspective, I mean, there's this poor girl, a child, an 11 year old, gang raped, forced to hold and keep her pregnancy. And after she gave birth to the baby, she was a gorgeous little girl, but Jane was so traumatized, she couldn't even pick up the child or hold it, let alone breastfeed it. And she actually had the shit beaten out of her by the nuns at the hospital. And it got so bad that I'd pull Jane into a private room and I'd lock the door and tell them that I was counseling Jane because I was studying psychology and that was why I got the placement in the hospital. And all I'd do is hold the baby and give her time off the baby and I'd take you know a bottle and feed the baby and I had it in my bag and just give her a break and I just spoke to her and her English wasn't that good but she could understand everything I was saying and I was I'd just sit there and I'd hold a baby and I'd let her be you know lying on the floor and teach her how to breathe and just tell her that she doesn't have to love her child and it's okay and she might not even see it as her child because she's so traumatized and that's okay too I mean, we're talking about an 11 year old 
an 11-year-old girl being forced to have her baby and hold the pregnancy from rape, from gang rape. And how it all happened was Jane, Jane's mother was a prostitute and Jane's mother took off for days on end. And Jane had a little sister who was about four at the time. And Jane went begging for food in the slum. And men who had used her mother's services noticed Jane and identified her as a prostitute's daughter. And they raped her because she's a prostitute's daughter. So that's how it all came about. And honestly, like if I look at, if I look back on the most traumatic cases I've had, that's definitely one of them. And that's not, a, that's not an incident that most of my donors know where it would be somebody we can identify. But that's kind of, that's like there's so many different things that happen. You know, there's so many girls. I've had about three or four referred to me that have suicided because they couldn't have abortions after rape and found out they were pregnant. Um, abortion, there's no abortion in Kenya at all. Um, it, you're supposed to be able to have one if the, if the life of the mother is in danger. But you know, I've heard of stories where even ectopic pregnancies have not been aborted and obviously that leads to death. Um, I've definitely heard of that happening in South America. That happens a lot there. There's, um, you know, if you even have a miscarriage in some countries in South America, you can be jailed just for having a miscarriage, which is generally no control of anybody's. Um, so Jane's case really stands out. Um, I've got another girl who lives with me. Um, I won't identify her real name on camera because obviously people know her face and I'm about to talk about her case, but. Um, uh, God, I nearly just said her name. <laughs> this is so hard. Um, let's call her Sarah. So Sarah is now seven years old. She came to me when she was just four. Uh, she lives with a family in one of our houses with her other five siblings who are beautiful. They've all been with me now for three and a half years. And um, oh, I nearly said her name again. God, if I, if I say it, we're going to have to edit this out before I post it. And um, Sarah was sold as a prostitute by her mother since she was about six or eight months old. And both of her younger brothers were also sold for the same reason by the mother. And um, this is actually an instance where we found out it wasn't the, the father abusing the children. We were told that by the mother, but it was actually the mother selling her own children as prostitutes. Um, when she came to me, she, you know, had so much extensive damage and it was kind of permanent bleeding and bruising. So she had some repair surgery done um, and a little bit of a plastic, a plastic surgical procedure on her pelvic region. Um, constant bladder infections. I couldn't touch her. Like she was in the house with her other siblings, but you couldn't actually feed her or go near her or, you know, I, I don't take any children's clothes off ever, like even when they come home and it's a surgical thing, I'm very careful that, you know, the child knows they're going to have a bath and the child gets to take their own clothes off and if they're not comfortable, then they can keep their t-shirt on and that kind of thing, that's absolutely fine. Um, but she wouldn't shower, she wouldn't um, use the bathroom, she would just attack me. I've still got some bite mark scars actually on my body for where she'd just launch on people. Um, and then one day out of the blue like we just let her be and let her do her thing and gave her the attention she need but didn't give her too much attention because we didn't want that to distract from everyone else's recovery in the house and one day she turned around and she spoke in fluent English and she just turned around and said Jen I want to come shopping because I was going into town to do the food shopping and I went okay and she got in the car and we're walking around the shops and 
I said, well, what would you like? Because like, I couldn't even get in a car with this child before. No, and it wasn't just me, no one could. And she sat with me and she sat with our beautiful little dog, Allegra, that helped me rescue all the kids. And she walked around the supermarket and picked up all the things that she wanted and was very diligent to make sure that she got lollies for all the other children in the house. And then she wanted to go clothes shopping. So we went shopping and my little sh food shopping trip turned into an eight hour day where Susie, oh, ah, where, um, ah, Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> where Sarah, um, went shopping for everybody and she got some beautiful little dresses and her first pair of undies and her first pair of new shoes and this gorgeous little sundress and I've got this video of her just spinning around in this dress and it was amazing but there were two stories and both of those girls are still with me today and you know Jane's well looked after and um, we ended up coming to an agreement um, a few years ago when I got back in touch with her to see how things were going and she's really well, she's in school, she's incredibly smart. Um, you know, but it's, it's, they're all, all the cases are the same, you know, at the end of the day, I've got all of these cases because there are too many unwanted children being born. You know, and everybody says, well, why is this problem so big? And it's very simple. The problem is so big because when a child is wanted and loved, then they've got a very less likely chance of growing up being abused and raped. It's children who are not wanted, children who are not loved and who are neglected and not cared for. They're the ones that get raped. So, you know, everyone, like people can have their religious beliefs or whatever, but, you know, and in Africa, it's really weird. They've got this big stigma with abortion and they seem to think that Western people are bought full-term babies, which is a load of shit. I don't know any country in the world that supports full-term abortion, like you can abort your child when you're nine months pregnant. Like that's disgusting. I'm all for abortion when it's, you know, safe and when it's medically necessary and when it's psychologically necessary, like up to maybe four months, four and a half. If you're talking with a child, you could go to five. Like if I'm talking about a 10 year old that's been gang raped, then yes, I would make that decision, but obviously I'm not the child's mother, so I can't. But you know, there's so much stigma around the concept of abortion, but there's far more damage being done due to unwanted pregnancies and lack of sex education than there is by abortion. Um, so that's why the problem's so big. And unfortunately, all the kids that, all the beautiful kids um, have been unwanted pregnancies. But to break the cycle, we need to look at we need to look a lot harder into our conscious and what we're doing and the impact of decisions. Like the impact of abortion being illegal in Nairobi. In 2011, there were 900,000 backyard abortions performed in Nairobi County alone. Now, I think Nairobi's got a population of five or six million. 900,000 backyard abortions. Yeah, now, that. we're talking about major, major reproductive trauma that can be lifelong. It can completely stop anyone from being able to have a child ever again. Because if they do d go and get bad medical care or anything that's not appropriate and not safe, like they might be a, a raped 14-year-old that doesn't want to have a child from rape, but then when they're 30, they might want to start a family. And because they had no access to proper health care, they're doomed. And in Africa, if you're, if you're barren, if you can't have children, culturally, there's a, very big, there's a very big stigma around that. 
And I think it's very rich that, you know, men are the ones making laws on abortion over women's bodies. I mean, we don't get ourselves pregnant. You know what I mean? Like, at what point do they take responsibility? They don't want to take much responsibility over there and they want to be the ones to apparently solve all the problems and tell us what to do. So I'm going off on a tangent, sorry. Mm. It's um, been one of those. I had another I had another two cases last night about 1am. I hope the phone didn't wake you. No, no, It was no. going nuts and it was, again, raped girls, one of them <sighs> suicidal. Can't get an abortion. What can I do? I said, well, I can't do anything. I'm not a doctor and at the moment I'm not in a country and it's illegal. Like I could end up life in prison if I do anything to facilitate that. So all I can do is advise you on where to go to get a second opinion. <laughs> well, you touched on it there. Jane sounds like she's gone on and she's now turning into a very happy young woman. And I'm sure you've got she other is. like really beautiful case studies of, yep. of the other side of the journey too. Oh, look, I've got a one-year-old now. He was raped and the surgeon did an extremely poor repair on him. And uh, he came to me last week. And a woman I just met on Facebook did a fundraiser for us. So some of you listening to this podcast may have donated um, last week for baby Charles. Uh, Charles is one-year-old and he's been admitted to a Coptic hospital in Nairobi where he had um, an emergency surgery and a colostomy bag put on because um, his rectum needs to heal, so he's now got an external bag um, because his stomach isn't allowed to function. And thanks to everybody who pitched in, um, he's safe and well, and he's making a recovery, but you know, I'm sure I'll have an update on Charles in a month or another two, but they all can recover and they all do, but it's not so much the physical recovery, it's the emotional one. And that's where we, that's where I really think my charity makes a point of difference because it is long-term and it's permanent and we're having the conversations with the kids that no one else will but it's a conversation that rehabilitates them forever Jen what is top of your list when you get back to Kenya and (laughs) make the kids clean the house (laughs) yeah definitely make them clean the house Okay. No, they're amazing. So we've got um, a grandparent who is the legal Kenyan guardian living in all the compounds. And yeah. one of those grandparents is actually a blood relative of a child that has been raped living in the house. So I do have incredible people back in Kenya. But um, as I touched on in the first part of this um, episode, that there's you've just you've really got to watch who, who you employ and who you trust. So obviously having... You know, an an elder. Elders are a lot better, kind of before the colonisation issue. Um, They seem to be a lot less corrupt. Um, So first priority when I get back is obviously going and checking in on all the kids and all the new kids. We've taken in about 56 more um, in the last couple of months for surgery. We've transported over another 300 um, to hospitals who needed emergency care. So the donations are still happening and going to the cause live in real time, um, which is amazing. Unfortunately, due to COVID, child rape has just gone through the roof. Um, the Kenyan government have decided that schools will not return until January next year, which is awful for the children. Our caseload in July had gone up 2,000% compared to this time last year. Um, so obviously my priorities when I get back, go and check on all the kids, check on all the new kids, um, go and introduce myself, check on their cases, see how a few cases are going in court, um, go and see my beautiful dog, <laughs> um, a 
girlfriend is looking after her um, at her lovely property and I thank her so much for that because my dogs are just my life. Um, but yeah, and enjoy my bed. <laughs> my bed, see my boyfriend um, and get straight back into it. Yeah. No doubt you're not going to stay resting for long. No. So that's the immediate, but what about the vision now for GVB, but also um, like what is in your mind the solution to some of these problems and, and what role do you hope GVB can play longer term in that? The, the most important thing to end this globally is for people to not back down on this discussion. I cannot stress how absolutely fucking crucial it is to have this conversation. Um, having this conversation changes lives, you know. It, having this conversation earlier, me acknowledging or I'm being able to understand what happened to me earlier um, and having somebody acknowledge that back in that point in time would have changed, you know, 10 or 15 years of my life. Um, I might not be where I am today doing what I do. Maybe it would definitely have happened, I think, but maybe later on in life instead of sooner. But I cannot stress the importance of having this conversation. Um, the acknowledgement and the consideration and the, the appreciation that somebody gets when, when, they, when they want, when somebody wants to hear, um, wants to hear their story and wants, wants to support them wants to tell them that it's not shameful and doesn't treat them in a shameful way for saying they've been abused and not backing down, not letting these politicians and these dodgy, dodgy judicial people and the judges and anyone who promotes or works against the prosecution of pedophiles and rapists needs to be held accountable. Um, and there is change. I said this last week on an interview that there's something going on in our generation, you know, we're not going to put up with homophobia, we're not going to put up with racism, and we're not going to put up with child sexual abuse. It was so badly covered up for so long. And I really think my generation and our generation in particular, we're, we're taking a stand on all of this bullshit, but it needs to happen with everybody, and it particularly needs to happen with the new generation. So how old are we now what i'm 33 yeah mid-30s as well like yep. we're ready to have kids well we're at that age i'm not i've got enough i've got enough trust me <laughs> but you know when people our age are raising our children we need to be having these conversations with them when they're two or three years old and talking to them about their body because it's like corruption in kenya it's like corruption everywhere in the world actually you know this is generational and we need to take a really big stance on this right now um and that's the, that's the most important way to help. And that can be done wherever you are, in any country you are, because this is a problem that's everywhere in the world. So, yeah, I really think that's the way forward. But acknowledgement, acknowledgement is key, guys. Acknowledgement is the key to recovery. Um, that's kind of the motto we go by at GBV Trust and in the work we do. It's mm. amazing. Every time you speak out and have conversations like this, thanks for coming to our event recently. And no, thank you for having me. It was wonderful. I know Botanical Gardens is a very special place to me. Um, when I was in severe um, hospital admissions and had severe eating disorders, I um, used the Botanical Gardens as a bit of a sanctuary for after therapy. And I'd just kind of go down and lie under a jacaranda tree and watch some birds and take it in so having a walk there and presenting the other morning with you was really special thank you for that thank you for that 
thank you. Yeah, it has an eye opener for everyone. And you're so I was going to say you're actually doing this already and putting yourself out there, making such a vocal stand, being so passionate the way you are. You're raising that acknowledgement, the awareness. You're doing so much. So what you're saying is that's the most critical. Um, Now in Kenya as well, beyond the awareness and the acknowledgement, the cultural level conversation. Like what, what are some other um, potential factors that are feeding into the growth of this problem over there that you might be able to help solve? It's a real patriarch society, right? Um, And also in the culture that I've learned over time. They, I think, I don't know if it's just Kenyan, but I believe now it's almost all of Africa. They have this, particularly the women, they have this, um, it's, in, it's in the culture that they want to always save face. They want to make sure that everything looks a lot better than it is and they always present everything to be better than it is. I mean, I see women who live in the slums who don't have a dollar to their name, who, you know, are far more well presented than most white people I know. Um, so they always have this persona and a girlfriend of mine had a baby and I've known her for five years and she had a baby about a year ago and she nearly died in childbirth and the baby nearly died and she got out of hospital and I said oh you know how was it how did you go and the response was absolutely fine and this is somebody I know really well so it's always this um, facade of you know not they never want to rock the boat they're very they're not good with confrontation and you know I get frustrated and I get the shits and people who know me know that I can lose it and I can yell but yelling they don't respond to that over there because they they don't like to ever have that confrontation and that's also with having hard conversations a hard conversation even though it might just be a hard topic for them to talk about not for not for somebody to discuss with somebody else but they like having a hard conversation is in itself a confrontation. So they very, very, very rarely report rape. But the other problem is when they do, they don't get any help. The corruption in the police system and my my partner, like I call him my husband because I love him and you know we're very close and he is a cop and he's not corrupt and he's amazing and he's so supportive. But there's just how the police force is raised and you know the level of or the lack of level of training and education they have at the lower levels where these women are reporting rape and they are reporting to junior officers Um, the junior officers they're not educated and they are corrupt and you know a lot of them do have a really bad attitude and they're not they're not welcoming to people who come and report rape and it's almost like they're attacking the victims Um, so when you kind of layer all of those things on, um, you know, when I don't hate the police force at all, I've got great friends who are cops, but this is something I've raised with the inspector general and the heads of the police department. I went and presented that particular issue to them um, about building better relationships between the police and the communities. Um, And then you've got government corruption. You know, you've got some really heinous people in the government children's offices who don't care about children at all, they traffic them. You know, they sell them. I've had major runnings with the government. The government's not really my friend, the police are. Like, there are bad cops, but there are bad people everywhere. Um, so when you kind of layer all of that stuff into the culture, it does make it hard. But again, Kenyan women will always talk when they see someone else talking. But what they need, what they, they're tribal people, what they need is somebody to lead. And they will follow and they do. 
um, and I can walk up to them and tell them I know what happened to their child or they can, you know, we can have that conversation and bring it to their level and say it happened to me. Like, you don't need to tell me your daughter fell off a chair. She's got vaginal trauma. I know she was raped. And then as soon as you kind of clear the air a bit and get the elephant out of the room, then they do open up. But, you know, it's a problem all over the, all over the world. People don't like to open up about this. But guys, we have to because the next generation is our future. Hey, talking about the next generation, this might be a nice place to tie it up, but obviously outside of donating and sponsoring kids, which it sounds like you've got really generous and amazing donors who've been with you now on the journey, but outside of that, I know you've mentioned some other programs, um, and one caught my attention, and that was one, it sounds like a bit of a pen pal kind of a project where you're connecting some of the kids in Africa that you're working with, with kids from uh, more privileged upbringings in or in yeah. other parts of the world, like Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is that up and running or what's it the is. plan behind it that? It is. So what I've set up is I really want, you know, we've all, everyone has things that go on in their childhood and whatever happened or didn't happen in mine is irrelevant. But I really think, you know, having having insight into how a child in Asia is growing up or to how a child in South Africa or South America or Kenya or even in the UK would grow up when I was a child would be would be something that I could you know I love traveling and love cultures and there's always that appreciation and you know that education you get from it so we've set up little pen pals and we've got our donors and our kids love writing letters to their sponsors on Facebook and we post them and everything but what I really want to encourage is now that um, children sponsoring children and I'd love for schools and classrooms to sponsor a child and you know they can do whatsapp calls and Facebook calls and like literally physically send each other letters and photos and my kids love taking photos and making videos um, and it's a really great thing and we've got um, a lovely woman in Singapore called Tatiana and her children Raphael and Natalie have made little videos and they've been sending that to Kennedy and Kennedy's made little videos and sent it back and they've been passing drawings and you know they're talking about their lives and the sports they like to do and the pets they have and what, so what's happening during COVID and you know what their school's like and all these bits and pieces yeah. and with the videos they're seeing the huge contrast and it's really great and I, I think it's great for the adults as well. I mean, I'm really enjoying it because I'm kind of like, oh, I've, you know, they've been sponsoring a kid yeah. for two years and finally I'm also getting to know the donors. So a lot more of that. Um, we've also got micro businesses that I'm setting up. So obviously a lot of these women whose children are being raped, they have no financial independence. And it could be the father or the husband or this new husband raping the children or selling them. Because um, let's face it, guys, you know, I know women are trafficking children and women have a big part in this, but... It takes a penis generally to rape a child and um, we need to be breaking these women away from these abusive relationships so now what I've been working on is little micro businesses so we're setting women up with little businesses where we're training them to you know to raise chickens and to you know have eggs and to sell them at the market and to look after the animals and about animal welfare and about you know the beauty of raising an animal and if you look after the chicken the chicken will provide you the best eggs in town and you'll get more money and then if you look after the chicken you can breed them and then you can sell chickens and we're going to do that with um, leatherware and kind of artisan gourds and crafts and things 
but um, the biggest project that I need to get set up when I get back is the micro businesses. We need to get some land. We're looking for about $30,000 Aussie dollars uh, to buy a couple of acres of land where we have, and I mean a couple of acres uh, where we can set up these domestic violence training programs where we can bring these women in, train them for six months, and anything that they make with the time that they're with us will be sold on our online store. Um, and then the income that they get when they're with us will be given to them at the end of the six or 12 months. And then they can also take the equipment they need and they've already got a client base. So they're leaving with an established business and some capital and a working income. Uh, because that's the other way to break the cycle of abuse is to give these women jobs. Um, you know, it's all very well to send them back to school, but the problem is there's no jobs in Kenya. So you can have all the education you want, but you can't get a job. So what I need to create is income streams. So between the pen pals and the micro businesses, that's, um, that's, been, that's been the big focus for 2020 and it will be certainly going into the future. That's awesome. Because when you talk about the pen pals and the microfinance, that's where I feel the energy in our conversation shifts and it gets more exciting and it gets more yeah. positive. Yeah. And, it's and that's, nice how you, that's how you stop child rape, you know? That's basically in the corporate way of how you stop child rape. You give women an income. If yeah. you give these women an income, they don't need to hang around abusers because let me tell you, they don't want to be abused. Yeah. They don't want to be hanging around the filthy slums. They do. They might not have expected the child and planned it, but they've got the child now and most of them do want to look after the child and give them a good life. But if they don't have the resources to do that, that's what happens and uh, well rape is what happens and abuse and neglect is what happens and you've got frustrated women with children they can't afford to feed yep. so let's stop that let's give them an income yep you know we shouldn't even have to have this conversation but we're having to have it and we it's are bloody important that we're having it we are um, it is mate yeah it's thanks so thank, much for the time thanks for and coming up here Oh, yeah, it's no, awesome. thanks to you. It's Get out of the city and mate. thankfully ScoMo's paying for my gym memberships so, someone, while I'm stuck here. Someone has to be out there fighting the good fight. and It is a good fight. You know, it's awful fight. and trust me, you don't want to be in surgery sewing up a four-month-old who's been raped, which is something I've had to do. You don't want to do it, but there are solutions to this and it's not like there are there are so many things that can be done, but between advocacy, income stream generation, um, and education, um, it, it can be fought, it really can. I'm a lot more confident that I can fix this problem now than I was a year ago or two years ago. So, but it's been great to come so up here, mate, and clear my head yeah. and catch up with you guys. Yeah, well, I'm... The beautiful Blue Mountains. I've lived in Barrel uh, for most of my life and I've never even made it up here, so... Stunning. Well, we're just about to catch this sunset, but um, I tell you what, I'm I'm pretty happy that I'm able to, in a small way, contribute to what you're doing, like making a bit of a contribution recently, and it's not going to be the last one, but obviously we want to encourage as many people to continue to do that and, and even dig deep because it's... And it's know, the regular, it's the monthly that we really need, you know, we can't... It's, it's amazing if it's a once-off donation, but that regular income means that we can provide regular security on the ground. Yeah. Um, see, and every dollar's tax deductible and it all helps and every dollar goes to the cause. It really does. You know, yeah. I'm adamant that donor funds aren't wasted. So, yeah. yeah, but it's been amazing. Thank you for having me, mate. Great, thank you. Let's uh, enjoy the sunset and I'll 
that you go on your way. I might have a make use of your hot bath. Don't have a bath in Kenya. Yeah, while well, you've got hot water, enjoy it. Well, I've got hot water, <laughs> hot clean water. Beautiful. All right, guys. Thank you all very much for joining us, and welcome to the GBV Charitable Trust. Um, you've just listened to episode one, part two, and uh, we'll be back for more probably in a week or so. Thanks for coming. Thank <laughs> you.